Hey, I'm fuckers. Welcome to Show Notes. I'm back. The Show Notes. Calling out listeners one by one. Show Notes. Bloopers and thank yous. It's so much fun. Oh, she's back Mm -hmm. with a vengeance. Here I am. I'm so happy to see your face. Thanks. You too. Thanks. While I was gone, Max replaced my board Mm -hmm. with his board. So now I don't know how to record anything. So that's kind of a problem. My board has a giant red button that says record. Yeah, but there's a lot of like glowing buttons that don't have words. It looks like Simon. It does. It's the uh, it's the new Rodecaster Pro 2, which doesn't mean anything to anybody. But it's pretty. It definitely is pretty. Yeah. How you doing, everybody? We're just here hanging in the studio, going through some show notes. Very happy to have my partner in crime back by my side, as I'm confident all of the unfuckers, subfuckers, eurofuckers, uncanuckers, down under fuckers, kiwi fuckers at all, are happy to uh, have you as well. Hmm. There might be some people who aren't, and that's okay. No, most of the comments that we got were, where the fuck is 99? No, someone said they enjoyed show notes, even without me. I didn't see that comment. Oh, we will read it later. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, it was in a coffee comment. I wasn't putting it in, like, spitefully, but... Oh, I see. Yeah. So, hey, unfuckers, we have a lot going on, not the least of which is the glorious return of the... Infamous 99. Infamous? Yeah. Not just famous? The notorious, the infamous, the famous, the legendary 99. Part of what we have going on right now is a lot of content. And we're going to try to get our arms around it and restrain the, I would say, the, the cadence of it so that it makes more sense between what's going on on YouTube and what's happening on the podcast. What I'm kind of psyched about, although I have to work out some of the timing delays, is we are really ramping up the amount of content and I I think quality content that we're doing by simultaneously, not really, releasing some of the topical videos that we're doing as topical creams because that's really how they're intended. So I'm writing them for the pod format, adjusting them for the video format, But ironically, as I mentioned, I think in the last show notes, I'm actually moving a little bit faster on some of the video production than we are on the podcasting production, which is not a reflection of anything other than the fact that, believe it or not, it actually takes it's it's a little more to get the uh, the podcast out and into the world because there's more things that have to happen behind the scenes. So they're usually running like it seems like they're running a couple of days behind when the video is actually released. So for those of you that are looking at the YouTube channel, you might notice that a couple of days later, there'll be a topical cream released on a similar subject. I'm really trying to normalize that and get those a little bit closer. But what I am liking right now is the fact that we're settling back into a groove finally this year of releasing on our regular podcast schedule and also getting these uh, video you know, projects out the door. So it's all coming together. I thank you for your patience. It means a lot to me. Uh, thank you for all of the wonderful, wonderful comments that we've been getting on YouTube. And obviously, everybody's continuing to write into us from the podcast. Uh, and I think more than anything, it just sort of expands the community. There's definitely some cross-pollinization that's happening, which is really fun and exciting to see. Pollination? What did I say? Pollination. Cross-pollination? You said pollination. Pollin- did I say pollinization? Yes. 
cross-pollination. 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 There's definitely some cross-pollination that's going on between the uh, the channels and the outlets, so that's a lot of fun. It's, it's exciting to actually see some people over in the in the YouTube sphere that, you know, we usually have to wait a few days to to hear from on the podcasting side of things. So all good in the hood. Now, why don't we get right to it here? Because we do have a lot of feedback and I want to start with some emails. Uh, 99, why don't you bring us in and tell us what Lola had to say about our first Carter episode? Sure. So Lola said, I don't know if you realize that Carter was chosen to run for president by Rockefeller and the Trilateral Commission. On winning, Carter put damn near most of Tricom into his cabinet. Yeah, so Lola, thank you for that feedback. We're actually going to hit the Trilateral Commission in the second installment, so you should hear that this weekend. I've downplayed more of the conspiratorial elements of the Trilateral Commission, especially because of the origins of the commission. It was founded in 1973. It's definitely murky, and and you'll see how it kind of plays out in the episode. Jimmy Carter being on the Trilateral Commission was a little bit of a surprise, I think, to most of the other people that were there. But then again, it wasn't like it wasn't this it wasn't as prominent as it wound up being at the time that he was on it. And he really only served on it for a cup of coffee before he announced for president. Were they instrumental in getting him elected? No, I I would say no. Were they helpful? Absolutely. Absolutely. Did he surprise even David Rockefeller, according to Rockefeller himself in his memoirs, that he appointed so many people from the Trilateral Commission to his cabinet? Yes, absolutely. And it had huge ramifications down the road, not all positive. And so the thing that backs me off of the conspiratorial element of this is the fact that many of the the, the folks on the Trilateral Commission wound up working against Carter behind the scenes when he was in office, even though Carter really wasn't doing anything demonstrably in opposition to their ideology. And what is the Trilateral Commission and what is their ideologies would be two natural follow-up questions. The Trilateral Commission was formed in 1973 by David Rockefeller, who was the grandson of the original J.D. Rockefeller. And it was designed to bring the business community kind of into the foreign policy discussion with respect to trade, global trade, and really intended to reunify trade and relations between Europe, the United States, and Japan. Because, you know, obviously after this is still just mm, two decades after World War II, and it was really important to bring the Japanese economy. Now, you know, now we recognize Japan is fully a client state of the United States. And that was really kind of the design of the Trilateral Commission. So if they were responsible for anything, I would say that they had a great deal to do with uh, bringing Japan into into the fold from a business community standpoint. The second follow up to that is how important, how impactful was the Trilateral Commission? Kind of what was it designed to do versus what did it actually do? This will be up for debate probably forever. There are some that consider this to be sort of like the core of the Illuminati, right? That these were the masters of the universe in, in the banking sector that really wanted to take over all global finance. That's actually what they wanted to do. And they kind of stated it as such, but they didn't put it in such uh, in, in such terms. They, they basically just wanted to make sure that we had a global financial presence and that the U.S. had a not just a firm seat at the table, but we were at the head of the table where the Trilateral Commission ultimately wound up doing 
Carter in particular a disservice is that they were working back channels through Rockefeller and Kissinger to undermine a lot of what Carter was trying to do through the sanctions regime against Iran. This would come out to play later in the episode. We're actually going to get to that in part three. Yes, there will be a part three of the Carter years. Uh, And so it's interesting how that all played out. So it wasn't all, it's not like Jimmy was their guy. If anything, he was still a little bit of an outsider when he joined the commission because he was just a Georgia governor at that point. And then he actually came out of power the next year and announced his bid for president. And then as president, he really, there was actually a lot of friction between Carter's cabinet and their former mates in trilateral. Kissinger, you know, chief among them. So I think that there was a, there's a lot more real politique to the trilateral commission discussion than there is conspiratorial elements. That's that's kind of the bottom line on that. But please do check that out this this uh, weekend, Lola, if you get a chance. And let me know what you think if uh, my take on it kind of squares with your understanding of it or if you think I'm going too light on them. And there you go. So that's that, that was like the the one big piece of feedback that we got on the, the initial Carter piece. There wasn't a lot. It was sort of like the first Clinton series where we just sort of laid the groundwork for to understand who the person was as president, just like we did in the first episode of the the Clinton years. This one is interesting because Jimmy Carter really did come from left field, and I'm very excited to see what people think of part two. It, it's really factual, it's really straightforward, and I what I find really interesting about it is what was really going on versus our perception of it in the rearview mirror, because now it's been 50 full years since that period of time, and there's no question that the lens that we view the Carter years through was immediately warped and rewritten by the Reagan years because it had to be. Reagan had to stand fully in contrast to Carter in order to get elected and then to stay elected because Reagan's first term wasn't much different than the Carter years. If anything, they were they were they were worse. But he had to project an image that he was the complete counterpoint to what Carter presented to the world. So that propaganda machine to rewrite the Carter years went into full swing. And I find it so fascinating that what was happening during that time, the the pieces that endured, like the cardigan sweater, solar panels on the roof, uh, Jimmy Carter fighting a rabbit from a rowboat. That's an anecdote for a later day. The fact that he projected some sort of like weakness and, you know, was was just sort of like this, I don't know, just a, a kind of a lazy, good old Southern boy who was overmatched by the job through all of these little anecdotes that were initially propagated by the, the press corps and then picked up on by the Republicans and then just continually sold to us for the next literally five decades are so different than what was really going on. But those were the things that would endure. And that's why persona, public persona really does matter in these kind of things. And and you could see how like in the Clinton years, one of the parallels that became apparent to me was like the immediate rewriting of history through, you know, by the Clintons, like they had terrible policy for black and brown people in the United States. And then the first thing that they did was announce that they were going to have an office in Harlem and they were going to go on all of these initiatives that were, you know, poverty initiatives. And they were going to do uh, they were, you know, con- con- continue their anti-racism, you know, initiatives and fun- and their funding streams. But all of that stood in stark contrast to what their actual policies were on the ground. Well, 
at least he had the opportunity to kind of continue to write that history, whereas Jimmy Carter just left from office and evaporated and pretty much left everybody else to define who he was for the rest of, of that period. So hopefully we're going to set some of the records straight, but also kind of lay out the trap doors that exist when you are a one-term president at a rather fractious time, just like we're in right now. Because the parallels between Biden and Carter, as we kind of stated up front, there really aren't any. But the potential parallels in the rewriting of their terms could be voluminous. Anyway. I'm nodding my head. I know that's not great for podcasts. <laughs> don't have anything to add. Oh. I don't know anything about him. Sorry. But you're learning. Yeah. Yeah, here we go, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm along for the ride with the unfuckers. I wonder how many unfuckers. Well, we do have a few that kind of raised their hand and were like, yeah, no, I remember the years. There's a couple on YouTube that uh, are giving their recollections of the 70s and what was going on. That's another thing that endures, the recollection of the 70s. It's like the two main events is I had to wait in line for gas and Iran held our hostages, which we're not going to get to until part three, believe it or not. So that's how much ground we have to cover in part two. There's so much meat there. I'm really excited for people to hear it. Anyway. Do you think that people named Carter, do you think that started around then? You know what I didn't look at is what his approval ratings were when he left office because they were so high in the beginning. They were like 75% in his first year. I mean, uh, just astounding. I think you should look at name trends. Name trends in, so we would be looking at like circa 77 and 78 if there were a lot of Carters born. Fun fact, oldest grandson faces, his name is Carter. And he's not 40 years old. I had a camp counselor named Reagan in 2005. <laughs> a woman. Well, she was probably like, to me, she was old. She was probably like 15. She Reagan or Regan? Re Regan? Reagan? I think Regan? she was Reagan. Hmm. I know two Carters and one Reagan. Boy, but I, yeah. That was many, many, many years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what, you know, are we going to see any Obamas? Do you know any Bushes? Well. <laughs> yeah. You don't see a lot of Barack's running around. Well, it's a lot, a lot of George's. Yeah. Let's see. <laughs> well, Clinton, right? There's a lot of Clintons, I bet. First name? Yeah. It doesn't feel like a first name to me. I guess no? like Clint. Yeah. Clint's badass. Clint's a great name. Yeah. But that's. I feel like you can't map that to Clinton. No, 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 yeah. no. No, not at all. Um, let's see. When do you think Biden will... Uh, you think there's a lot of Bidens being born? I'm trying to think if you... My name is Biden Smith. Make it cute. Yeah. It was like B-A-I-D-Y-N. Biden. Maybe. <laughs> That's for, you know, the alternative name crowd. I still only have one friend who's a rabid Biden fan. Everybody else is just like, yeah, no, it's working. At this point, it's just her brand. Yeah, it's her brand. I don't yeah. think there's... You're right. Yeah. So let's get into... Oh, tech layoffs. Had some fun with that episode. So Dan H., who's been very active and has given us a lot of great feedback, wanted to add some perspective to the tech layoff spree that often goes unnoticed by many, the effect on soon-to-be college grads. I work at a large public university on the West Coast, and we've come to a similar conclusion as you all did during the tech lay regarding the tech layoffs. Yes, the layoffs are painful for those who go through them, but largely the tech sector itself and the economy as a whole are doing fine. To provide some anecdotal evidence about the availability of internships and what's happening there. But then says, for juniors and seniors graduating soon, 
all they see is doom and gloom headlines that scare the shit out of them, especially for international students who are banking on securing employment after graduation that would allow them to stay and work in the US for one to three years. It's a tough battle to try and out-message what students are seeing in the mainstream media, especially since the advice we give is often to look beyond the big name employers laying everyone off to smaller, regional, or even local employers that offer similar jobs with a little less pay and benefits. Yeah, so it's it's a great point about the perception that's being laid upon these students that are, you know, thinking that these big, high-paying jobs in the tech sector are awaiting them. The message here is that maybe not as astronomical, but the jobs are still awaiting them, and they'll probably wind up at a smaller company where maybe they could have, you know, even more of an impact, right? I mean, you look at, like, in our other life, 99 and I are in a small company that has, you know, great opportunities that when somebody joins the company, they change the company. And I, and I, I said this to somebody recently over, over the weekend about the culture of a team and how when you operate a team that is small, every new person means you have a brand new team because that person brings something significant in terms of everybody's daily, you know, interactions to the table. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't, don't have any doom and gloom if you're a junior or a senior, if anything, you might have the opportunity to kind of, well, first of all, go anywhere you want because the economy post pandemic has opened up and the opportunities have become, I think, more interesting in places that might to you be more interesting and appealing to you're live. Right. To me? No, <laughs> I'm talking with you. You said to me, right. I just thought you were trying to. No, I said to the something. juniors and seniors out there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't think it's doom and gloom at all for the students. I think they actually have a great path forward. Um, it's just not going to be that, you know, the, the days of the huge signing bonuses and going after engineers for a lot of the the big guys in, in Silicon Valley might be coming to an end because it suits their narrative to not have to write those checks, even though they're all doing just fine. But, you know, I think that that set unrealistic expectations, just like a lot of the hedge funds set unrealistic expectations, you know, by us in New York for years and years. And all of a sudden, when financial, the financialization of the economy sort of spread out and globalized and people could, you know, set up a satellite office somewhere and just connect to the markets just as easily as anywhere else, all of a sudden the lure of Wall Street wasn't what it used to be. So everything changes, everything morphs over time. But I think that the opportunities definitely still exist if you're if you're in the tech field. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there obviously are, there's plenty, but my fear is, I I feel like the entry level position has disappeared because like for a smaller company like us, we can't, we don't have time to do a full training. Like bring someone on who has no skills that's valid and train point. them into a role. Yep. And that's just the way we specifically operate and it works fine for us. We get, you know, mid-level, and it just works from there. We train into a role, but they have to have this, a certain skill set to come. Yeah. A lot of other, you know, the big companies that are doing layoffs, they're kind of the ones who have room for that because they have such broad teams that I think entry level people can thrive there. So I think they're probably, you know, if you're looking, if you're doing layoffs, the person who contributes the least theoretically because they don't have the same set of skills as their manager they might go first. Yeah. And then you have a lot of entry level people entering into the field at the same time. Additionally, we have, I have a few friends who are out of work right now. So, you know, when I see jobs on LinkedIn, I always look at the, the descriptions for them and some of the requirements for these jobs. I mean, like I, I was reading one the other day for like a marketing manager and 
it just the amount of things they were asking it was it was just so many red flags in my head i was like this is a person that's going to enter no it, sorry it wasn't a marketing manager it was an hr like associate mm. they were basically asking them to be a babysitter they were asking them to assist with events in the office so it's like you have to be there to set up and like clean up so it's like that's not someone who works in hr like that's an events manager you yeah, know what i mean exactly so i just fear with when things are, when people are let go and not backfilled and things are consolidated, we have these unrealistic expectations. And it's why people in Gen Z, you know, if they don't like it, they leave because they're, mm-hmm. they weren't told in the same way that, you know, even my generation was like, stay in a job for a year minimum to what well, looks good, five, 10, you're committed. You know, they'll, you scratch their back, they'll scratch yours, which isn't necessarily true. So I don't know. I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm just not necessarily. No, but I think as... you're, you're bringing up a good point about the type of job, because you know, one of the things that was teased out in that piece, of course, is that it's the softer skills yeah. that are being cast aside because they no longer have to kind of play the uh, the performative role of paying attention to like human needs. Mm-hmm. Whereas the engineers weren't necessarily getting Twitter aside. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> you know, the engineers weren't necessarily getting laid off. And we even know from the Microsoft example that even though they shed such a huge part of their workforce on the other side of the equation, it's because they're about to invest so much money into building out their artificial intelligence skill set. So it's like swapping older engineer skill sets for, you know, the burgeoning frontier skill sets. So um, so you're right. I mean, if you're looking at HR, if you're looking at marketing, if you're looking at sales, uh, if you're looking at. Well, hospitality is on fire right now because it, that's finally coming back around. I think it had the largest growth of any sector in January in particular. Uh, but if you're looking at the corporate world and softer skills, it's it's definitely going to be more competitive because, you know, the uh, these things come in waves. Like people just, the EIBs kind of, you know, being pushed aside. Accessibility is being pushed aside. The softer side of HR is being commoditized and put online, mm. which I find kind of weird and scary in its own way, you know, I don't know. So yeah, we should, I should definitely be more specific about the types of jobs. But I think when we think about the tech sector and we think about those engineers, especially the ones that are coming here on student visas that are coming with that background specifically in mind of getting into the system, because it's one of the only pathways still that you can become a citizen here from a foreign country that does have to be scary. I do think that engineers are going to be okay. Continuing with Dan H, by the way, Uh, because it leads into something that Sue S. said. Dan H. said, for your media recommendations episode, I feel like you left off a category, and I did on purpose, race and social justice. You've talked about uh, content from podcasts like Let's Talk Native and Newsbeat. I'd also recommend Code Switch by NPR and Pod Save the People on the Crooked Media Network as other options for folks interested in these issues. Um, So, Dan, I actually did leave a few categories off because I wanted to make sure... I kind of wanted to stay within the the lane that I'm most comfortable in, obviously, which is uh, economics and socioeconomics when I was uh, divulging those podcasts that I consider critical sources to, to round it out. Some of them veer away from that into just the purely political and progressive, which I, I totally get. Uh, but then I, my, the list that I had was like way too long. So I just decided to kind of uh, to pull back on it. But these are all uh, great shows that you mentioned, by the way. Uh, which leads us to Sue S. Uh, Sue said, no mention of Janine Jackson. What have you been missing for 15 years? Or did I miss your mention of her or Counterspin in your podcast? 
no and no. And I have literally no knowledge of this podcast. None. I don't, yeah, I don't know who this person is. So Sue S, I've got some homework to do. And uh, my apologies if Counterspin is a big show out there that I, that I, I really, I, I have no awareness of it. And it's so funny. It's like, yeah, we've talked about this before 99, where it's like, well, you can't know everything, but sometimes like I, I, I guarantee I'll, I'll look at this and be like, oh, this is an amazing show. And this, this woman's doing amazing work. But like, I, I just, I just miss stuff. You know, it's like these huge, like cultural things that you'll bring up in conversations. <laughs> I have no fucking idea what you're talking about. You're like, what planet are you from? But the point is you, you, you can't know it all. And sometimes when you get down this, uh, this rabbit hole, especially I've noticed with video, the algorithm really is powerful. The, the algorithm is, will, will manage your life if you let it. And so that's why it's important to break outside of the box of what, of what your, your, of your comfort zone uh, and to try and discover things like Janine Jackson. So thank you for the recommendation. I will be checking it out, Sue. Uh, and uh, I have to be completely honest that I have no awareness of the show. Uh, Aaron N. said, I hope you've not taken on too much with the YouTube channel. I trust you know it's a rabbit hole doing video. You seem like the podcast was your happy place. Uh, if it was me, I would work on Phone a Friend a bit more as it is a classic podcast go-to or have a panel of friends. YouTube is great, but should be highlights. The people you're reaching are busy and watching stuff is time consuming. Audio can be used while one is driving, walking, or working. Aaron, you are hitting all of the practical and important highlights and uh, some of what I had promised to do in the very beginning and launching all this. I think I'm working through the kinks. I think I'm in a much better place. And the evidence of that will obviously be if uh, you feel like we are hitting our re-hitting our stride and our cadence with the, the podcast drops. And if they are demonstrably different than what you are seeing online, which on, on video, which they should be. One note about the, the podcast and the frequency, you might recall that I also promised coming into the year that the format of the podcast for the full unfuckings would be tighter. One of the things that I felt got away from me last year was in the editing process. And I think I've used this example before that I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Sometimes when I just let it go and overwrite, I had a tendency to leave it because it's harder to edit one's own words than it is to just let it be. And so I felt like actually some of the podcasts were getting, were just getting, I'm not going to say too long, but that that's sort of the byproduct of them just being too loose. And sometimes in in writing, there's a phrase called kill your darlings. I wasn't killing enough darlings in the process, and I felt like some of the episodes were, 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 you know, breathed a little too much and could have been punchier and tighter. So, like, if you noticed on Carter Part 1, there was a lot on the cutting room floor because I kept going back and revisiting and revisiting and saying, you know, make this listenable. Just tighten this fucking thing up. Part two is a little bit longer. I'm in the process right now of literally doing just that. It's written. And I'm just cutting and carving and shaping and molding. And this is something that I go through with, with my kids. And both of both of them are, are actually really capable writers. They're very different writers, but they're very capable writers. And my eldest is an exceptional writer. And But sometimes when she hits the wall, 
she has a tendency to do what I do. And that's just like, all right, fuck it. I'm just going to throw all the information on the page. And she's in college now. So she'll send me an essay and be like, what is even happening on the page right now? Can you help me tighten this up? And I realize I, I recognize some of the, some of my style in her writing. And I'll, I'll just get her on the phone and I'll say, in your words, what are you trying to say? Forget about the research, the quote that you have on the page and all of the, the, the anecdotal information to support this. Tell me in your own words what you're trying to say. And invariably, it's a, it's a shorter, more concise and more straightforward, you know, sentence even that she'll give me rather than the two paragraphs she had trying to explain what it is that she's trying to say. That's how I felt that where my writing was getting last year. I don't know if that did you feel that along the way? Because obviously the very first ones that we did, they were like, you know, 25, 30 minutes. And then they were there was like an hour and a half. And, you know, they just sort of went on and on. Sometimes I felt like the subject matter dictated and warranted that. Sometimes I felt like I, it was just, I was unrestrained. Unfuckers, if you feel like the formats are tighter this year, it's it's by design. And I would very much like your input as we continue to go along. All right, who is next? The union fucker. Hey, now. So they shared an episode <laughs> of Wall Street Journal's Your Money Briefing podcast called Worker Pay is Rising, But Their Piece of the Pie is Shrinking. And the episode is about, it says the Federal Reserve says worker pay in the U.S. is rising too fast for it to bring inflation down to 2%. Wall Street Journal heard on the street columnist Justin Lehart joins uh, host J.R. Whalen to explain how workers' share of the economy continues to shrink despite rising hourly wages. And so the union fucker said this is such a short podcast. It's like about seven minutes. But I'd love to see a deeper dive into this mentality of the feds. Thanks. Love what you do. So... Let's just look at that episode description for one second here so we can sort of dissect the madness of Wall Street's narrative. Worker pay in the U.S. is rising too fast for it to bring inflation down to 2%. Worker share of the economy continues to shrink despite these rising hourly wages. What is the economy? The economy as we've been doing some work on the channel now about Adam Smith and going back to basics of capitalism, one of Adam Smith's innovations was to include labor costs in GDP. He came up with the concept of GDP. When we talk about economic activity, it is all of the activity and the money and the growth and the labor, putting a price to the labor, so including wages in that equation. It's a huge part of the equation in GDP, right? If GDP is continuing to grow, but the share of the workers is going down, then it is not ever with the workers' wages that will help bring inflation down. Why, why these two things are correlated in their minds is kind of beyond me. So much evidence is out there that during the peak growth years and low unemployment and wage growth years, Inflation was level. The 50s, the 60s, into the just the crest of the of the early 70s. And then again, during a brief period in uh right in the run-up to 2008, There was sort of like this little this little halo period. But other than that, we're talking about two decades where hourly wages, union wages, true working class wages in the country grew faster than they ever had before. And also inflation was in check. So why they try to correlate 
wage growth and and trying to suppress the wages of the working class with trying to also contain inflation is just it's just fucking bizarre. But it's it suits the narrative, right? So yes, the worker share is shrinking, but the economy is growing, which tells you that the other share of the economy is growing more, and that is right into the pockets of multinational corporations. The fact that we still can't coalesce, although we're going to talk a little bit about this in a topical cream and a video release, just stay tuned for it. We haven't been able to coalesce one party narrative that supports the working class because the corporatists have taken over both parties. The most surprising thing about the State of the Union was that Biden, in his own weird way, attempted to do just that. And it's such it's such a surprise. And I think it shocked people because no one has spoken this way, literally, not even Jimmy Carter. So no one has spoken this way since LBJ. Nobody has defended the working class in such a way. The fact that nobody is talking in these channels and on Wall Street and on, on the conservative outlets about the criminal level of corporate profits that they have racked up even during the pandemic and post-pandemic, pre-pandemic, just period over the last several decades at the expense of the workers is astounding. So again, the Fed Reserve says worker pay in the U.S. is rising too fast for it to bring inflation down to 2%. How can that fucking be? So workers are getting less of a share of the total economy, but too much that they're the cause of inflation? Really? When everybody got a check during the pandemic and they got the child tax credit payments directly into their fucking bank accounts, what did they do with it? They paid off their debt, they paid down their mortgages, they paid their rent, and they bought not more food, they bought different food. They bought better food. Food that helped keep them fucking alive and more healthy. They didn't buy more of it. They didn't buy big screen televisions or fucking cars. And they didn't go out and go hog wild buying jewelry like the fucking 1% does. They bought staples and they paid down their debt. Nothing that the working class did contributed to inflation at all. Only corporate greed contributed to that piece of inflation, along with the supply chain shocks and the fucking war in Ukraine. That's it. That's the end of the fucking story. So the more we continue to support this bullshit narrative from the Federal Reserve and the likes of Larry Summers and all of these fucking miscreants that are constantly blaming workers for having too much and yet also not enough of the piece of the pie, those two things cannot coexist. Sorry. It's just math. And I'm bad at math and I can do it. Hey, where do we leave off? Um, Bookstore Kim. Bookstore Kim. Hey, gang. Wanted to recommend a book that is great for parents and children. Killer Underwear Invasion. How to Spot Fake News, Disinformation, and Conspiracy Theories by Elise Gravel. This is a book for children and obtuse adults and clearly outlines what fake news is and how it happens and what to do about it. A useful tool for teachers and parents. Wow. What a great resource. Thank you, Bookstore Kim. And nice to make your acquaintance over on the YouTubes. Thanks for coming over. All right. So speaking of YouTube, 
we pulled a couple of comments. There's a lot of comments flying back and forth on YouTube. If you want to check it out, that's where old Max here has been busy and active. Just FYI. Pulled two because um, they're a little bit longer and I think require some discussion. So J.R. Vigue or Vig or Vige said, thanks for another informative video, Max. Appreciate how you connect the dots so clearly. Uh, I live in California and too many intelligent but underinformed people here still worship Reagan. Well, he's Californian. Easier to believe that these were the good old days for wealthy white Americans anyway than to carefully review all that he's enabled and subsequent fallout. Do progressives have equivalent think tanks or organizations to create and enact long-term strategies like this? Such a great question. So by the time you hear this, there may be a video up about, oh no, yeah, it's going to be about a day later, about think tanks in general, where we go into greater detail about the conservative libertarian think tanks and how that evolved over the years. There are progressive think tanks, so-called progressive think tanks, but the distinction is, is pretty clear. So you've got like Human Rights Watch, for example, is considered a think tank. It's funded as a think tank, uh, puts out policy papers and, and does advocacy in, in a similar way uh, to a lot of the big think tanks. So that's an, an example of like a progressive think tank. After that, there, there are a couple more, but like, let, for example, Brookings puts itself out there as a progressive think tank. I don't find Brookings, I use it. I, I, I look at it a lot because I do think that they have really great data analysts, but I don't always think that the conclusions they draw are progressive. I would personally consider them to be very, very middle of the road, to be very centrist. So a lot of the times when I find think tanks that put themselves out there as progressive and they have a big budget, they're pretty, they're pretty center of the road. There's also a distinction between foundations and think tanks, and sometimes there's crossover. Like, you know, the Gates Foundation, for example, considers itself part think tank and part foundation, you know, to do funding because they're also doing research that they'll add to the mix that directs their funding initiatives, so on and so on and so forth. So pure think tanks, the biggest ones out there are position themselves as centrist, independent, moderate, or maybe liberal, and they are all, in my estimation, middle of the road to right wing. The libertarian think tanks are all just completely far right. They're just far right as, as anybody could possibly be. There's one with the title American in it that's actually kind of like fairly liberal, but you can pretty much bet if it has American in the title of it, it's probably a right wing think tank as well. When it comes to progressive think tanks, here, see if you can spot the difference. They're usually very small, extremely wonky. The people there do not make a ton of money and they are hat in hand for government grants and fundraising initiatives and probably have a big support us button on their website because all of the money goes to Kaiser and Brookings and Gates and all of these big giant foundations that completely suck up all of the oxygen and the money in the room so they can go to their big fancy dinners and have their big donors in a black tie go up, feel really great about accepting the award that hopefully whitewashes all of the shitty things that they did during their lifetime so that they can consider themselves a philanthropist later in life. And that's how the fucking world turns. The progressive organizations that do really good work, like the ones that are against mass incarceration and doing work to end poverty and end racism in this country, 
tend to toil in financial obscurity, and it's a shame. There is not a credible resource, and I would challenge you because I've had to do it in even in recent weeks, to go online and just Google progressive think tanks. There's no list. There's no compendium of resources out there that puts them all together and ranks them by the validity of their progressive values or even there's no there's no list of values for that matter there's no like uh declaration of values for what might be considered a progressive think tank whereas on the right they are highly organized incredibly well funded and remarkably efficient at what they do and it's why we have been losing the battle for 50 fucking years so no we do not have equivalent think tanks or organizations now mind you there are 1800 think tanks not all of them are right wing maybe it's let's call it 50 50 but i guarantee you that 90 percent of the money is going to the middle and then all the way to the right and they are killing themselves for that 10 percent on the left to try and make inroads so that's that's just the reality right there and then we heard from Kathleen D, who said, what is the purpose of the debt ceiling and should it be abolished? So I responded to Kathleen online and I wanted to surface this here as well, because it is such a great question. And that's why I wanted to surface it here, because we've done a video and the topical cream on the debt ceiling, the folly of the whole fucking thing and how this is just lazy ass Kevin McCarthy from his days as a young gun with Paul Ryan and Eric Cantor wanting to pull at least a page out of their former rather successful playbook to hold up the country and hold it hostage. Of course, he fucking blew it during the State of the Union. All the Republicans blew it when Biden pulled a fast one on him and, and wound up like taking everything off the table that they were going to use as leverage, which is fucking hysterical that they were outplayed by a guy who was 107 years old. <laughs> it was just it was fucking awesome. At any rate, the debt ceiling was enacted at it. You know, I, I think it's like 100 years old, literally. I think it's like 100 years old. And it's something that they have to put in, that they just have to keep uh, moving the needle on. The answer to your question is, should it be abolished? Is absolutely. If there is any validity to it, the Republicans have erased it. The validity would have been to inspire a good conversation every time we approach the debt ceiling to say, hey, what are we spending this money hey. on? Hey, look at my choo-choo. I'm going to fuck the rail workers. Ha ha. Hey, I spent all that time with you the, with the, uh, uh, on the on the the, the uh, choo choo. And 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 then when you needed me. Hey, at any rate, should it be abolished? Yes. But what it was intended to do was inspire a conversation about the direction of funding, because a lot of times what you'll see is they will set it and forget it. And things will just be baked into the budget and crock they don't the, the crock pot budget. That's right. It was supposed to inspire these really valuable conversations about what we're spending our money on. But the fact that one of the points actually that I make in the Carter episode is that even Jimmy Carter, who was the most who was the cheapest austerity minded president maybe ever, still raised the military budget, wouldn't touch it, raised it by three percent during his term every year, year over year. Just wouldn't touch it. That has compounded since and obviously gone crazy since Reagan came in and just and then really, really quadrupled down on that and then kept the increases the same. The fact that 
they gave $50 billion more again on top of an additional $50 billion for Ukraine in the military budget this year, just as they had done under Trump, by the way, just gave him more money than even Trump asked for, shows that we've lost any ability to have a rational conversation about this fucking budget. What we have to separate is those expenditures do not contribute to inflation. You've heard me say this at nauseum, so I'm not going to go over it again. But that's always the Republican talking point. If we spend all this money, it's going to increase inflation. And then when it finally happens, once every 50 fucking years, they're like, see? <laughs> but it's, it's, one thing has nothing to do with the other unless it is perfectly convenient for them to invoke that argument. Because otherwise, we're no longer having the conversation ever. So absolutely, because we are incapable of having a rational conversation about the budget and the fact that more than one third of the whole budget and more than 50 percent of the discretionary budget in this country goes towards military spending domestically, internationally, whatever, of some way. If you take surveillance, the surveillance state, the the uh, the spying apparatus that we have, the maintenance of all the departments and the, the bases that we have, payroll, contractors, mercenaries. And all the new tech that maybe does work or doesn't work or can't spot a fucking balloon in the sky, when you put all of it together, it's more than 50% of the whole fucking budget. If we can't be rational about that, then no, we shouldn't have a debt ceiling. Is that the end of that one? Yeah. Okay, well. I haven't been with you in a long time, and obviously you are the key to my like getting just fucking juiced up, I man. Make you angry? No, you make, you get me excited. Okay. By the way, uh, there was one really, really smart correction, and it's it's a correction in the way that I framed something on uh, the topical cream and the video, and that's from Host Jet, who said, "I think you made a mistake with Japan's debt to GDP. Pretty sure it's not thirteen hundred percent." Host Jet and I had a little back and forth. They are correct in the way that I was making the comparison to the U.S. GDP. If U.S. GDP had spiked to uh, 107% pre-pandemic and then up to 140-something post-pandemic, what I was uh, correlating that to was Japan's debt-to-GDP, which was 1,300 if you include private debt, meaning all of the treasuries that are held by the citizenry as well. Public debt is what's held by foreign countries. If you just look at Japan's public debt, it is around 250% therein. It's it, it ranges between like 230 and 250 or something like that. Uh, so thank you for that correction. Uh, it's not fair of me to lay one number down and then conveniently use a different number. And it was inadvertent. And I thank you for the call out. Now let's go over to social media. On the Facebooks, Steve D said... Jimmy Carter was the only true Christian that was ever president in the modern era. He is what Christian love really looks like. Um, yeah, 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 he was. He was absolutely. Yeah, you know, I get so caught up, Steve, sometimes in the way that the religious right has just perverted our view of what is of what is Christian and what is faith, for example, like how they embraced, you know, three times divorced or whatever he was, twice divorced, Donald Trump. Uh, Well, no, twice, yeah. Twice divorced, yeah, Donald Trump, who cheated on uh, his second wife with his third wife uh, while she was pregnant. Oh, no, 
cheated on his third wife uh, with a porn star while she was pregnant. You know, that that guy, as opposed to uh, faithful Obama. Everybody knows here I'm no big fan of Obama's presidency on its on its merits. But as a person, as a human being and as a faithful man who was also you know pretty adherent to his Christian faith or Joe Biden, who is one of the most devout so-called Christians, I, I, you know, it's going to be interesting. What I made a carve out in the beginning of the Carter episode to say that one of the only parallels that I see between Carter and Biden is that they are both devout men of faith. Biden has done nothing as president that would dissuade me from that. What's breaking my brain is Biden as president versus Biden over his 50-year career leading into becoming president. We're going to be unpacking that a lot more, I think, in the, in the next few months because it's it's truly breaking my brain. I'm having a trouble separating Joe Biden, the senator, from Joe Biden, the president right now. But I will say, so if we're just to isolate this period in time, Joe Biden way less, how do I say, evil in foreign policy than his predecessors, except Carter. I don't know. I, I and it's a, it's really interesting. I Steve, I would be interested to hear what you think about Joe Biden, the Christian. It's a fascinating subject to me. Should put that out to our to our buddies over at uh, Swag too. Yeah, I'm sure they've talked about it too. Anyway, let's move on on social. So Sarah G shared an Instagram post of hers, and it's about Arkansas Bill SB 43. The bill is titled to add certain restrictions to an adult-oriented performance and to define an adult-oriented performance. Oh, I can't wait to understand what this is. So Sarah said, bills like Arkansas SB 43 threaten the fundamental right to freely express ourselves and are part of a coordinated national effort to remove LGBTQ people from public life. This bill redefines who is considered a drag performer, regardless of age, with the purpose of sexualizing and criminalizing anyone who who exhibits a gender different than assigned at birth. Right, okay. If you sing, lip sync, dance, or perform in front of two or more people uh, while wearing clothes, makeup, or other accessories that don't match your gender, assigned at birth, you'll be considered a drag performer. Like Robert Smith from The Cure? Can't be Robert Smith anymore? Probably. That's a rap in Arkansas? Cancel that tour date. Yeah. So this bill would make it dicey for trans people to perform in public at all. It's not targeted things like Mozart and Shakespeare. Those things do fall under the rule and people may still be deterred from programming works. So like all of that original Shakespeare where the men played the women, any Monty Python, anything? Yeah. Can't do it? Yeah. So Sarah says to contact your representative and tell them you stand with LGBTQ Arkansans? Arkansans. How do you say that? Arkansans? I don't know. Um, there was an update on February 3rd. Can you look at it and see? I, I didn't understand it. <laughs> Gutted Arkansas bill no longer targets drag performers or LGBTQ community activists, say. So I like didn't know because this... Heavily Sarah, amended to survive a court challenge. Sarah shared it before that happened. And I couldn't... There's a lot here. Let's, let's definitely put this in. It's definitely going to be too much for us to read and synthesize to do it justice right now. So we'll include links, obviously, in show notes. But it looks like even the surviving bills are extremely problematic. 
So let's all say about that. For example, uh, the other bills to target the community are still moving through the Arkansas legislature sponsoring House Bill 1156, which restricts bathroom use in public schools. So they're going to break it up and try to probably piecemeal something through instead of just like one big ban. That seems to be the upshot here. So yeah, uh, we we'll definitely link these online. That's just so ugly. Bills like this happening all over. So, and I bet they're model bills written somewhere by a think tank that's funded by a foundation that came out of the mind of some right wing Christian billionaire. That's my guess. All right, folks, we've reached the end where we thank all of the people that have recently signed up to support the show. Let me just say that we are killing ourselves to make this the best show that we possibly can, as we always have continue to innovate and to change things up. It is getting more intense in terms of the time commitment. We are up to the challenge, but every single donation, every purchase of coffee, every review, every subscriber on YouTube, all of it adds up and helps us paint a picture that allows us to keep doing what we do. Thank you. Thank you. Deeply, truly from the bottom of our hearts for supporting us. Zach, is now a member. And thank you, Zach. And Kellum is now a member. You know what? Dennis Kellum. Dennis B. Murphy is also now a member and says, great show. Rod is now a member and says nothing. Well, Leslie is a member and says, hi. <laughs> Maria from Puerto Rico bought five coffees. <laughs> and uh, she, she, as Maria does, she likes to write long, so I had to truncate. But uh, thank you, Max, for letting us to get to know your face. When you said recently that you and FTR would be on YouTube in the near future, I didn't realize that you meant right fucking now. So unaware, listen to the excellent app on the airlines as a podcast as usual. And just right now, I happen to see that you are on YouTube. You are very handsome. Oh, Maria. I have to confess that I thought you were fucking with us. <laughs> the talking head was an actor. My husband and I stared at the computer screen in awe. You look like a Hollywood star. LOL. Uh-oh. Ask my husband who is watching with me. Our jaws dropped. You were right. It was very distracting to see your face, but we'll get used to it. Okay, that's it. That's... Very, 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 very kind. And um, will, I'm sure, be the subject of some great mockery as soon as we turn the mics off. The one thing I will say that I'm, I was like thinking as the comments were coming through of like, wow, 99 really did you dirty. And I'm like, of course I don't think the thing that I say like that. But yeah, you're old and you're ugly and like fucking stupid hair. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just- I did get a haircut and now it's it's much more fuckboy than it was, uh, I think, in the initial filming. So yeah. Yeah. When I think the fuckboy <laughs> conversation might have happened in the summer yeah. when you had really <laughs> fucking long yeah. hair. Yeah. So that was like peak, like fuckboy flow. Pandemic. Yeah. Hair. So yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I'm not like a monster. I'm not telling him he's ugly every day. Just not every day. Yeah, not every, every day. other day. But um, but yeah, so thank you, Maria. By the way, uh, before we continue, for all of those that are asking when they're going to see 99, the answer is you're not until 99 says you can. But for now, unfuckers, this is really important. It is of the utmost importance that you... Uh, Convince all the new people that come that we keep 99 right where 99 wants to be and out of the spotlight. That's just not what she wants right now until I convince her otherwise. I will come on, but I will wear a bag over my head and I'll do it. I don't care. I'll wear a bag over my head. That's weird. Why? What if I wear like a Reagan mask? Is that funny? Kind of. Okay. All right. Yeah. You can see just my hair and I'll put my glasses over the mask. All right. It'll look really silly. 
Unfuckers, give me some time. Remember the podcast started with no 99 too. And eventually I have a way. I was here. I just wasn't on here. I know. I don't like it. You're like still here and not like on I'm there. Like, a, like I was like a, a mid-season ad. Like I'm, I'm a featured player. I'm saying you're coy. I know. And you need to be lured. Yeah. I just have boundaries. Exactly. And, and we're uh, all going to respect those. Yeah, thank you. Nathan Surst bought two coffees. What up, Nathan? And then Reciprocal Hokey bought six coffees. Like show notes, even though 99 was absent. See, Reciprocal Hokey might secretly hate me. Even though. I know, I'm just saying. Glad to hear she's r and well, I'm back. Uh, I felt bad. I wasn't a member, so I went to sign up. Oops, I already am a member. <laughs> Have a few more coffees as well. That'll learn me. So in addition to being a member, they bought us six coffees. Unbelievable. It all adds up, and uh, it adds up to us appreciating the hell out of all of you. So thanks, everybody. 99, welcome back. Love seeing your face. Love being next to you. Thank you for uh, being here. Are we good to go? And are we clear? I think so. All right, then. Unfuckers, we'll see you online. Please, if you haven't yet, go to YouTube, subscribe. We already hit our threshold for subscribers, which is great. Now it's about watch hours. We're about a quarter of the way through what we need for watch hours to get into the creative community. So you are you are killing it. Keep killing it. If you if you have to, go to your friend's computer, your neighbor, your coworker, turn the channel on. It's not a TV. Log on, open up the YouTubes, go to UNFTR, and uh, play our videos on repeat. Mm-hmm. Okay? Thanks, everybody. See you next week.